Once again, good morning and welcome. Glad you're here today. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Acts chapter 8. Sunday morning, we're studying the book of Acts together. We come to chapter 8. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. And if you just wave and get their attention, they'll put a Bible into your hand. It'll be marked for our passage this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 8, we'll look at a single verse, verse 2, but we ought to pick up a little bit of the context by beginning in chapter 7, verse 54. This is the reaction of the religious establishment, the Sanhedrin, to uh, Stephen's uh, sermon to them. Verse 54, and when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. And he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul They stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Verse 2, and devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. We can hardly believe that we have the privilege of being able to hold it in our hands, to be able to hear it, to have your voice of your Holy Spirit added to it. We thank you for the powerful, powerful work you have accomplished in our lives through your word. And Father, you are the potter and we are the clay, and we ask that you would use your word this morning to fashion our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength after yours and after Jesus's. And lead us, Lord, into the greatest, freest, most joy-filled and blessed life that could ever be lived, his life. So help us not to just listen to a sermon or to learn some facts about the Bible, Lord, but to hear your Spirit speak to each one of us individually. We pray for that miracle of your Spirit in each one of our lives. Glad that you can accomplish it, and we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Acts chapter 8, verse 2 records for us the aftermath of Stephen's death after becoming the first martyr in the history of the Christian church. And the day of his death, I think sometimes it's good to put ourselves in the shoes of those that we're reading about in the Scriptures and to personalize it a little bit. But on the day of his death, it began just like any other day for him. And when he left home that morning, death wasn't even remotely on his mind. It wasn't on the radar screen at all. He had no idea that it would be his final day on earth physically in, in, in his lifetime. And yet before the day was over, his dead body lay lifeless 
contorted under a pile of stones that had been used to kill him outside of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Death can come quickly in life, and very often it comes very unexpectedly. Left to Saul and the other Jewish religious leaders who participated in Stephen's stoning, his body would have been left to rot out in the open. They had no more concern for him or respect for him or the bearing of his body. They would have left it to rot in the sun or to be eaten by dogs. But instead we're told in verse 2 that devout men came and they carried Stephen to his burial and made a great lamentation over him. It fascinates me that concerning the record of the life and the death of Stephen, that the Holy Spirit doesn't end the record of his life and of his death with his death. But the Holy Spirit goes on in the passage to further describe Stephen's legacy, the influence he left behind in the lives of others when he did die. I have attended many, many funerals in my lifetime, and uh, more than probably any 20 of you or a dozen of you in this room all put together have in your lifetime. It's a part of the calling as a pastor. And I've been in many funerals in which I've been officiating. I've been in many funerals in which I wasn't officiating, many funerals for friends and for family members or acquaintances of other people that I cared about to show a presence in coming and being a support to them, and of course, many funerals associated with this particular church family. And it's interesting what can go through your mind in a funeral. I happen to think that funerals are very, very educational events. I don't know how many people think that way in the culture, but I'm never sitting in the room in which a funeral is being conducted without thinking to myself, this is one of the greatest educations a person can ever be exposed to as we're all sitting there. First, every funeral teaches the living that death is coming for them and that it is coming unrelenting, it is doggedly, it is uh, coming with a tenacity, and it's coming, and it's coming, and it's coming, and because it is coming for every single one of us, it must be prepared for. And it must be prepared for physically, and it must be prepared for spiritually. I don't know how anyone can sit in a room of a funeral and not personalize it enough to realize what happened to them is going to happen to me. What is the preparation for death? And of course, faith in Jesus for salvation and for the forgiveness of our sins is the preparation for death. As Jesus declared concerning himself, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. That's quite a statement to make. The second thing that funerals educate us in is that every funeral teaches that every person in this world leaves a legacy behind when we do die. It's never a matter of whether they do or they don't. They always do. And the only question is whether it'll be a good legacy or whether it will be a bad legacy. Every person is remembered by others for something and as something. 
And so when in a memorial service, a person or several people get up to share something personal about their departed loved one or family member or their friend or their co-worker, they will share how this person influenced their life in one way or another. And I would suspect that a good portion of the people in the room upon hearing that at the memorial service will at some time, if not in the moment of the service, at least on the drive home, that somehow they will personalize it enough and realize that one day people are going to be attending their memorial service and then to wonder concerning themselves on that day, what will people say about me? They'll say something. What will they say about me? And what will I be remembered for? And what people will say about me and what I am remembered for, that is my legacy. And it's important to realize that we will one day leave a legacy. It's important to realize that our influence for every single one of us, our influence will outlive our lives. And whether that influence is for good or whether it's for bad, Everyone lives on, in a sense, in the lives of every person they've ever known. The lives of friends, the lives of family members, neighbors, co-workers, our legacy will always outlive us. I remember uh, planting many years ago in, in my yard, and I like to garden. I like to think while I'm gardening, and it's a quiet place to do that. I like the earth the miracle of the earth and growth, and here we are in this season. Spring is springing this year for, uh, this week for us, and always reminds me of resurrection, and so the whole cycle is wonderful for me. And so I remember planting two crepe myrtle trees in this front yard of the home that I was living in, and then also some little ollie shrubs. And as I was planting them on that particular day, I was thinking, these plants that I'm planting will all outlive me. They're all going to outlive me. And uh, again, I think a lot when I garden. One day I'm going to write a book on gardening. I'm going to entitle it, The Melancholy Gardener. <laughs> but I would venture that, to guess that most of the shrubs and the trees planted in Modesto have outlived the human being that planted them. And so the planter's influence continues in that yard and in that neighborhood on a physical level long after the person is long gone. When I drive through the Napa Valley, I can still see the telephone poles that I planted in the ground as a lineman for the phone company. I can still drive by and see the cables that I put into the air and to see the splices that I spliced both this, it, it, when I ultimately became a cable splicer for the phone company. Here even 30 years later plus, my legacy with the phone company lives on. But the impact that we have on human lives is far more important than a yard or on a telephone pole. What we have, the impact that we make upon people through relationships, through love, through caring for them, friendship, commitment, generosity, wisdom, good deeds, Christian service, all of these things live on in a far more powerful way than anything we will ever do in the world on a physical level. And here the religious leaders of the Jews at this time, they had silenced Stephen's body. 
but they could not silence his influence upon people after he was gone. No one can silence that. They can kill the body, but they can never silence the voice of the influence of the life. No one has the power to do that. And even they could not do that concerning Stephen. You notice in our passage that Stephen's death produced a great lamentation. And when people heard about his death, there was this deep, deep sense of loss inside of them. The word lamentation in the original language in the passage, it means literally beating. And when someone would die that you cared about in those days, it wasn't uncommon for them to beat their heart. And it was an outward demonstration of the beating that this loss in my life is now uh, taking upon my heart in the same way that you could beat a person to death physically. Here is this news that comes now, and it's just beating against my heart, against my emotion, the greatness of, of the loss, communicating that this hurts my heart, this news breaks my heart. And notice, too, that Stephen was not only buried and lamented, but that his death was lamented by devout men. And the word devout there means righteous men. It speaks about spiritual men. Not all who die and are buried are lamented. I think about how often a person will live their life so sinfully and so selfishly that when they die there isn't a tear in anyone's eye. No one regrets their death at all. And there are some people whose name is, even within their own family, their name is a curse word, and their death is actually a deliverance for the family. I remember years ago, one time officiating a, a funeral service, and before it began, this kind of rough-and-tumble guy uh, came up to me, and very, very straightforward, cowboy kind of guy, and he said, "'Don't you say one good thing about that man.'" Because if you do, every single person in this room will know you're lying. And it wasn't the first time I'd heard that before, a memorial service, and it wasn't the last time that I've heard that from people. Everyone leaves a legacy. And a life that produces no lamentation at their death and the lives of those who are left behind is a wasted life. But I want you to notice as well, that not all who die and are buried are lamented by the devout. There's the famous actor or actress who has gained the world's acclaim, has the whole world lying at their feet because of their ability to portray a character, and they've spent their whole life in the portrayal of wickedness and participated in the advancement of wickedness within their culture. At the time of their death, it's lamented, but the righteous do not mourn. And in the light of both time and eternity, their life has been wasted. There's the politician who learns very well what's necessary to gain power and to hold on to power, but he or she then uses that power to advance and promote ungodly legislation, to pull down and to tear down God's definitions of right and wrong, to redefine good as evil and evil as good. And at his or her death, the righteous do not mourn. And as a result, in the light of both time and eternity, their life has been wasted. And then there's the person 
who amasses a fortune in money and in wealth and does so so often even by legal means in terms of the laws of the land. But those means violate God's laws and they lead vast multitudes of people into the bondage of sin. And in this category is every single penny that is made on pornography and video games that are sinfully violent and sexual. Again, much of the movie and the TV and the music and the entertainment industry falls into this category, men and women becoming unbelievably wealthy as a result. But at their death, the righteous do not mourn. And in the light of time and eternity, their life has been wasted. And on and on we could go giving examples from life. But no man or woman has lived a truly noble life if their death does not produce lamentation among the devout, among those who love God and are strongly committed to the cause of Christ. And it is the man or woman whose passing leaves a hole in God's work and in the heart of the devout, those who know and love God, who has lived well. And it isn't the number of people that lament their death that matters. In terms of the Stevens in my spiritual life, those whose death brought great lamentation into my heart, among them Chuck Smith and Bill McDonald, but not just men and women as prominent as that, but also Dorothy Culbertson, who, though trying to navigate a very difficult life, that she was attempting to navigate even as a Christian. She befriended my mom and took on all of her problems as well, and my brother and sisters as well, and never ceased to speak to us of Jesus. And Pastor Chuck Smith at his memorial service, it was held at the Anaheim Convention Center, and it was filled with the lamentation of the devout And Dorothy's memorial service was attended by a comparative few, but her sphere of influence was much smaller. But those few experienced the lamentation of the devout at her graduation into heaven. And I want to be quick to add that it's important to remember that none of us can adequately judge the effectiveness of our ministries in our our lives for the kingdom of God based solely upon what happens in the course of our lives. There are many, many Christians, though dead and long ago gone to heaven, are more alive today on the earth in terms of influence than ever they were during the time that they lived. How often it is that you'll read in history, certainly concerning uh, great artists, and I'm talking about painters, And they spent their life painting in some kind of low-rent district within some kind of major urban center and ultimately to leave entire rooms full of paintings that no one wanted to buy, nobody could appreciate. They end up dying of malnutrition or starvation or they end up in the gutter of things in, in severe poverty and all. And it's only after they die 
that suddenly someone sees the genius, somebody sees the beauty of it, somebody is able to look at that painting and see how it is that they looked at life, and then suddenly they are famous in all of history. But how often it is the influence is far after life. And what is true so often of an artist or someone like that in life is also true of many Christians. I think about Charles Spurgeon, the influence of his teaching and relationship with God is now worldwide. Once largely centered in the Americas and in England and the British Isles, and now the whole world is influenced by his preaching and by his teaching and sermons. John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is second only to the Bible in all of human history in terms of the number of sales of a book And the 1,300 editions of it have been produced, printed by the year 1938, 250 years after his death. We think of Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation. He had no idea what he birthed, what God did through him. As important as he was in in human history and in church history and what he did and whatever kind of significance he might have thought was upon his actions, he could have never dreamed that what he started would reach right into this room here today and into every single church in the, in the entire world. His influence is far greater after he died than ever it was during his lifetime. Jim Elliott martyred bringing the gospel to the Oka Indians in Ecuador. And then perhaps supremely the Apostle Paul himself, as he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord, and therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts, then each one's praise will come from God. There is so much of our influence lives far beyond the physical uh, lifetimes that we live. The legacy that we will leave upon our death, of course, is completely determined by the life that we live now. Robert Murray McShane died at the age of 28, one of the greatest saints who's ever lived in church history. His influence was phenomenal in the British Isles, phenomenal in the country of Scotland. And he wrote in his diary, live so as to be missed when dead. And so he did, and so he was. And his impact for Christianity in Scotland was so great that when he died, the entire nation mourned his death and his influence. As a relatively new Christian, I remember being impacted by a comparison between a legacy that was left by two men in American history, one by the name of Jonathan Edwards and the other by the name of Max Jukes. Both of them were contemporaries of one another. Jonathan Edwards was 
the great Puritan preacher and great uh, theologian, one of the greatest theologians the United States of America has ever had, and he was foundational in uh, shaping the first great awakening in the United States of America back in the 1700s. And it is said concerning that move of the Holy Spirit and that great awakening that in the entire history of the United States of America, never was the, Uni- was the United States of America so close to God. The work of the Holy Spirit was so strong. And then there was the, this legacy also of, of Max Jukes. Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah, they left a godly legacy for their 11 children. And at the turn of the 20th century, an American educator and a pastor by the name of Winship, he decided to trace out all of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards almost 150 years after his death. And his findings were astonishing, especially when compared to uh, Mr. Jukes. Jukes' legacy came to the attention of a sociologist by the name of Richard Dugdale when the family trees of 42 different men in prison in New York State uh, all traced back to Jukes. Jonathan Edwards' godly legacy included one United States vice president, three United States senators, three governors, three mayors, 30 judges, 13 college uh, uh, presidents, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, 60 doctors, 75 army and navy officers, 100 clergy, missionary, and theological professors. They could find virtually no lawbreakers. And then on the other hand were the descendants of Max Jukes, who gave his life to laziness and to godless living. And his descendants included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 128 prostitutes, 130 other convicts, 310 paupers, which uh, accumulated over 2,300 combined years lived in poorhouses, 440 who were physically wrecked through addiction to alcohol. Out of the 1,200 descendants study, 300 died prematurely. And moreover, it was estimated that Max Jukes' descendants cost the state of New York at that time the astonishing sum of $1,250,000. And while it cannot be viewed as a hard, fast rule, because there are exceptions on both sides of the fence. As we see in the listing of the kings in the Old Testament, you had good kings come from evil fathers, and you had evil kings from, come from good fathers. But it does speak to us one truth that is something that we can recognize, and that is it does speak to us of the power and the importance and the potential of a godly legacy. The righteous do die, but they live in such a way that death does not bring an end to their influence. As the Holy Spirit spoke in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, of the faith of Abel, by faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it he that is Abel, being dead, still speaks. So all of this then raises the question, how does one leave a legacy like Stephen's? How do I leave a legacy that will cause the devout to lament my departure? 
How does one live a life that's an influence for God and for good long after we're dead and we're gone? And the answer, of course, is to live a life marked by the same things that mark Stephen's life. It's the reason that the details concerning his life are included for us within the passage. And the life that Stephen lived is a life that's available to every single Christian in history. It's as available to us as it was ever available to him. And we notice some of the characteristics of Stephen's life. We're told in chapter 6, verse 3, that he was good, of good reputation. He walked the talk. The life that he lived in church, he lived out everywhere else in life as well. Chapter 6, verse 3, that he was full of the Holy Spirit. In that same verse, that he was filled with wisdom, that is God's wisdom. Chapter 6, verse 10, and then the entirety of chapter 7, he was full of the Word of God, possessing this very, very deep and working knowledge of the Word of God as his sermon revealed. Chapter 6, verse 8, that he was full of faith, that he, and then further, that he lived a life of Christian service, fully committed to God's call upon his life, whatever the cost. He lived his life possessing an eternal perspective. Again, at the end of chapter 7, it, where we're told, but he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I have had people complain to me through the years and say, speak of Christians that they know that are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. I tell them to a person, show me that person. Show me the Christian that is so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. I keep hearing about them in a negative sense. I've never run into one yet. They are as rare as an albino robin. It is precisely because we are heavenly-minded that we are of some earthly good. And I agree with C.S. Lewis completely on this issue when he wrote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. He was also a man of prayer. And it's interesting to notice that he used the final two sentences that came from his mouth before he died. He committed them to prayer. In verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Verse 60, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And Stephen lived and died like Jesus, full of love and forgiveness. He, Jesus had prayed at the scene of his death, his crucifixion, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus had prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen prayed, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Stephen models for us, and it is the intention of the Holy Spirit for not only the fact that here is a life that caused great lamentation among the devout, but he, a portrait of his life and of his priorities within his life are laid out within the Scriptures for our learning and for our education. I remember seeing a woman contestant being introduced on a television game show, Wheel of Fortune, this many years ago. 
And when being introduced, these new contestants, they would you, typically they speak about some past accomplishment that they have in their life or some uh, major interest or activity that they're engaged in, some kind of place of influence related to their life and so forth. And all of it's intended to help us uh, gain a little bit of insight into who they are as a person. And as they introduced this woman, they declared concerning her, she loves to sit on her couch, watch movies, and watch the Wheel of Fortune. And I thought to myself, she is wasting a perfectly good life. That is a legacy on how to waste a life. But at funeral services, I have heard the lives of many Christians encapsulated in virtually the same way. Nothing said of their love for God or their love for His Word or their prayer life, or their godly reputation, or their heart for the lost, or their eternal perspective, or their Christ-likeness, or their Christian service, or the fullness of the Holy Spirit upon their lives. And yes, in the service, the preacher is able to speak of their presence in heaven, but only because it's a free gift, but nothing more really. And the whole service communicates that this person cared enough about Christianity to want to go to heaven, but they had no concern for a legacy that would be a godly encouragement and comfort to the devout when they were gone. And then I think about how many pastors are called upon to officiate the memorial service of someone who claims to know Christ, and the minister has to sift through their lives on almost a microscopic level in order to find some evidence for their faith. And that's a reality, my friend. And how refreshing it is to attend the coronation service of Stephen as it's recorded for us here in the Scriptures, and how wonderful it is to attend the coronation service of a saint like Stephen even today where the entire service can be given over to a celebration of Christ and not only what He saves us from, but what He saves us into to speak of His cross, His death, His burial, His resurrection, to have a service like that have the atmosphere of victory within it. And it's a wonderful thing to experience, and it's a powerful thing to experience. We will all leave a legacy in this life and there's nothing wrong with giving some thought to our legacies while there's still some time to shape it. Let's leave a great one. Let's live so as to be missed when we die. And I think how wonderful it is to realize that we can be an influence for good and for God, both during our lifetimes but also long after we have gone to heaven. And Stephen provides us with an invaluable insight into how to do so. It is a priceless passage, really. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, death is coming for you. It is coming. No matter how close you think it is or how far away you think it is, it is doggedly and tenaciously coming for you. And it can come so swiftly and so unexpectedly, and that's the reason that death must be prepared for. And the only adequate preparation for death 
is to put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, to put my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection, and in the fact that he is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases God. And then in doing so, to have the greatest miracle that a person can ever experience occur within their life, to have God Almighty in the person of the Holy Spirit come inside of our lives and make us into a new creation, to give us everlasting life and to lead us into a life that is one that we could never otherwise know, not only in the life to come, but in this life. And it all happens by just saying, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to turn from my sin. I put my faith in his death, burial, and resurrection for the forgiveness of my sins. I give you my life, Lord. And then when a person does that, God comes into their life and the miracle begins. And that's the preparation for death, for the Holy Spirit brings a life into us, everlasting life that will never, ever And as Jesus said, whosoever lives, that's every one of us in this room, but he went on to say, and believes in me shall never die. It's not enough to just be alive, but to put my trust in him. And there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after this service, and they'd love to answer questions and pray with you to begin that relationship with God. And God loves you, and he will be eager to make a miracle of your life. And he is the only one that can supply us with what is needed to leave a legacy like Stephen's. And you may sit here this morning, and you have burned every bridge in your life. You have destroyed every relationship. You have victimized every person who's ever made themselves vulnerable to you in the course of life or you just fill in whatever the blank is. And you look at it and you say, I am a million miles away from Stephen. If I were to die today, I wouldn't want to attend that service and know what would happen in there. But it can all change. It's not too late for you. God wants to come into your life, and he wants to make you a trophy of his grace. Change everything. And change your influence in this life from something that is detrimental toward people or even neutral toward people into something that impacts people for God and for good. And it's all just a prayer away. Let me speak for a moment to any of us this morning that might be backslidden. The Bible talks about the backslider in heart will be filled with his ways. We backslide in our heart long before we ever backslide outwardly. It's a long progression that occurs, and it's very possible to be in a room like this. I'm not pointing fingers or trying to be heavy, and I'm certainly not interested in spanking anyone. I got all of that out of my system a long time ago as a preacher. But the passage is an important one. And if you sit here today as a Christian, and you know you're a Christian, you're on your way to heaven, and you, know, and you say, you know, the fact of the matter is that my life as a Christian in terms of influence looks more like the woman on the wheel of fortune than it ever looks like Stephen, then change that. Change that today. 
God gives second chances and third chances and fourth and on, 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 and on. He does. But all of that can change. And if there's a need in your life today to repent, to rededicate your life to the Lord, or to settle the issue of Jesus' lordship in your life, then just do that. And, and so often a person can come to Christ, saved, born again, but it, the life never gets handed off to the Lord. That's what I mean by, us, by you know, setting the, the, you know, the, settling the issue of Jesus' lordship within my life. And so often, you know, I know how to... I know church. I've been around it for 35 years. I know it inside and out. I know it intimately. I know if I wanted to how I could put an act on in a place like this, even in a pulpit. And I know how it is to portray myself, how easy it is for us to portray ourselves as one thing and to know in the depth of our hearts that I'm very far away from Stephen. My life, if people were to know it, is very far from being an influence for good and for God, or at least it's not what I want it to be. God loves us, and God is willing to give us second chances, to rededicate our life to the Lord. And as long as we have life, we have the ability, we still have the time to fashion the legacy that will be not only for the sake of ourselves, which is the least of our concerns, but for the sake of the people that we will one day leave behind when we do die and go to heaven, barring the rapture. And if your life is one where you say, in the privacy of my own heart, um, I am not in a place that I want to be. I don't want to hear what anybody would say about me at my memorial service and and then these same men and women would love to pray with you to rededicate your life today. Get on the path. Get on the path of Stephen and then have that legacy. Again, not supremely for your sake, but for your children, for your grandchildren, for your co-workers, for your neighbors, for all of these people that God has given us this incredible privilege to be influential within their life. And I don't want anybody to leave here today thinking, wow, man, now all you're going to do is just think about your funeral. I got to, I got to do some good things, or I got to have two or three people that'll say something. That's not the whole idea here. This influence can be so quiet, like Dorothy Culbertson. The whole world misses it. The whole city misses it. The apartment complex sometimes can miss it, but it's there. I don't want you thinking all about paralyzing in that kind of a way. You know what I'm saying. We've been given a tremendous opportunity. Let's live so as to be missed when we die. For God and his glory and for the good of those we'll leave behind. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, think about the game, Trivial Pursuit. In this vein, and it's our culture. 
pursuit of trivia, the pursuit of nonsense, the pursuit of the temporal, the pursuit and the spending of our entire life and what will not outlive us in this life, in many respects will not outlive a day or a week or a year in terms of its significance. And we thank you for passages like this that encourage us to think more deeply about life than the culture tells us to think about life. And so speak to us, Lord, again in the privacy of our own hearts in this regard so that each one of us, when we ultimately as Christians go to heaven, barring the rapture, that our lives will leave a significant hole in your work to be filled when we leave, and that our loss, Lord, our departure, our homecoming, will bring lamentation, Lord, to the devout. That's the kind of influence for you, Lord, that we want to leave behind for people. Search our hearts and our lives. Speak to us deeply in this regard. If any of us are, even in a small measure, on the wrong path, for leaving behind this legacy. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.